Hello, and welcome to the Rooster Crows podcast. I'm Judy Pressman. In this episode, we talk about what life is like on an Indigenous reserve in Canada. Reverend Stephen Milton recently sat down with Leo Atlukan of the Amitong First Nation. Leo lives on the reserve in Fort Hope, a remote community north of Thunder Bay, where most of the year the only way in or out is by plane. Like many reserves in Canada, there is a boil water advisory in effect. Leo gives a first-hand account of what education, housing, water, and family life is like on his reserve. Stephen and Leo met in person in Toronto, in the sanctuary of our church. Later in the podcast, we will hear from our choir as they sing a musical setting of the words of Chief Seattle's famous speech. But first, we join Leo and Stephen talking about life on a Northern Ontario reserve. So Leo, thank you very much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. So can you just sort of describe what the reserve is like? There's uh, 1,500 people that live there, and it's, it's beautiful. You wake up in the morning, sun comes up, and you can just smell the fresh air. And once the thing gets going, the trucks and the community starts moving, and uh, the dust picks up. It's pretty dusty. Um, the dogs start barking, the birds. It just comes alive slowly. Um, uh, during the summer, during the winter, it starts a little later. So it gets dark from five o'clock probably. Gets dark there, and it lights up about eight thirty, nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And so, and what proportion of the town's population is indigenous? All of it except for teachers, nurses, and uh, and people that are coming to service the community, help with the community. Of course, one of the things which uh, people in southern Canada hear about a lot is whether drinking water is safe in um, First Nations communities. How's the water in, uh, where you live? From the tap, it's yeah. no good. It's, it's terrible. <clears throat> you have to boil it for five or ten, I mean five or more minutes to uh, to consume it, then you let it cool down and you can drink it. But when you go to camp in the bush, there's uh, the spring water, it's called, they come from the spring and it comes out of the ground and that's the cleanest water you can find up there. But when you live in a community where uh, where the water is, it's not good. But uh, I hope they get it going. And is that because there isn't a, uh, a water treatment plant? No, there is a water treatment plant. It's just not serviced. It's not running. It only runs water that you can bathe in and you can uh, shower and uh, do dishes and stuff like that. But you can't consume it. What does it taste like when it comes out of the tap? I mean, there is water that comes out of the tap which people could drink, right, but they choose not to. It's like, uh, like a how to describe it, like swimming pool, chlorine. There's a lot of chlorine in that water. That's what you're boiling out when you boil it. it tastes like swimming pool, like when I went swimming there a couple of last weekend. I mean, this is the thing that's so perplexing for uh, so many of us. It's like, 
okay, you've got a water treatment plant, but it doesn't actually do what it's supposed to do. Yes. Why is that? Funding, like money. They need money to upgrade it. Like it's upgraded the outside and the tanks and all that, but the structure of getting clean water out there is what really is the issue, I think, anyway, with getting clean drinking water. And does the water come from the lake, or? Yep, the lake, yeah, no, it comes right out of the lake. And it's been coming out there since as long as I can remember that uh, we've had uh, pipes and, because before when I was a kid, I used to go get water out there and we didn't boil it. Like, we never boiled it when I was a kid when I went to get a, with, with a pail and a sled to get chisel a hole sometimes or just paddle paddle about 20 feet out and get water and then paddle back in. And how, how long is, has your town had the uh, water treatment plant? Oh, about 27 years now. And it's never worked properly? No, no, never worked. It's always been boil advisory for 25 years now, maybe longer. And the boiling water advisory, is that something that the province says? Yeah, the province plus the health worker that works there and does the testing and keeps coming back saying, no, not yet. And I, I assume that, you know, you've written to your MP and the, the federal government and said, hey, come fix our water treatment plant? Oh, they've, every chief I know that I've known, I've always brought up that water issue. It's never gone to where it's fixed, but we had a chief there that got us the building and the stuff that needed, right, that needed. But then again, we went back to boil advisory water because the project wasn't done. It went over budget or something like that. It's complicated, it costs so much. Like down here, I was looking at it and I bought gas for a dollar thirty, dollar thirty-four, and that was in the 90s for us. How much does gas cost where you are now? Two twenty. 220. 220 a liter, yeah. I assume since everything's flown in that food's pretty expensive up there, too. Oh, when you live in a remote community, everything is doubled. You know, people say we don't pay taxes, but when you live up there, you're paying double the tax. Well, I guess some people say, well, First Nations people like to live off the land, so why don't they just get their food that way and not import their steaks? That's how I grew up, was off the land and lived in a bush and with the gas to get in the bush and the work it takes to stay in the bush. The government wants you in school. The government wants you in the community. The government wants, you know, it's still the same. It doesn't, up there it hasn't stopped. You know, like, how are you gonna get your uh, income if you don't stay in the community or how are you gonna feed your family if if you don't stay in a community and you live out in a bush. My parents, well, they grew up in a trap line. Eh? They only came to the community during the summers. Just like I said, eh? pick up your $4 for your, you know, that's just uh, to say I am from this community. You know, it's treaty money. Or they would go into and go to church and all that, like they used, they, they used to come into in the summertime. In the winter, they would go out trapping, hunting, fishing. But now it's uh, it's changed. It's changed a lot. 
You know, everything has changed since uh, residential school started. That's where I myself, in talking to my grandparents and my parents, made the whole adjustment from what I used to live in to now. Right? So did you attend a residential school? No, no, no. I, re I attended day school. It's another, it's another thing that we're uh, fighting for in court called day school. And that was before we had our own school. And what's the difference between day school and the kind of school that uh, you have in the community now? Day school, we were uh, forced to go while we lived in our community. That was why, that's the difference. Like now when you register, you can register for education. Like it's, most of the community members know that you need education to move forward and get the advantages you need, right? But when I was growing up, it was, you gotta be in school or they, your parents don't get this or your parents don't get that or for most of us down here, we go, well, we have to be in school too. I mean, it's actually against the law for our kids not to go to school, right? And the parents can get fined or, I don't know, maybe even thrown into jail for truancy, right? Um, so what's the difference between school is mandatory for kids under 16 and what you were experiencing? The difference was I went to school. I came to school probably in May and then in September to November maybe. And I would uh, have my homework and my work brought to me in a bush, which most kids didn't have. Right? But me, I, that's how I learned. Like, I practically taught myself like just reading what the work was for. But the work was like, um, I was in grade five, it was grade two level. Like, you know, it wasn't super hard. And I had my grandfather and my grandmother that didn't know math, science, and all that stuff, right? So I would have my uncle come once a week or twice a week. He would come and show us how to do it. And he came from residential school himself. So we had two uncles that came and taught us. The whole Keys family on my mom's side, they were in residential school. So are you saying that the that sort of schooling, which went to where you were living, allowed you to continue to live your indigenous lifestyle, hunting and trapping out in the woods, and get an education? But the the uh, day school, you had to go back into town and... and Most kids did, yeah. Most kids stayed in the community. But I was living in the bush, and they used to bring my work. And then I would send my work back. But I would get about three months out of the school year, out of ten months, and seven months in a bush. So when um, when you had to go to day school, was that something the government ordered, that every kid who was living in the bush would need to come into a community? I know I had to come back to the community, go to school, I think it's ten days, just like the law that says at least ten days out of the month you have to be in school. So I used to come into the community, do ten days, go back in the bush or they would bring my work out there. But it was, like I said, the level was like three grades down or two grades down. 
So did you get a better education when you started going full-time in the community? I didn't go full-time in the community. As soon as I reached grade 8, you're being flown out to Thunder Bay. So as I came back from the summer time in the bush, I went in and registered and they said, you're done, you're going to be leaving in two weeks to Thunder Bay and you're going to high school. What was that like? So did you go with your family or just by yourself? I went by myself. Uh, my brother's already out there, so I had my brother and my friends that were going, most of them anyway. The first two months there was, I couldn't believe the change, how hard it was. Because you'd never been in a city before, I guess, right? No. No, the kids like that story where I'm walking down the road and everybody's honking at me. Because in the community, you can walk on the road, right? There's hardly any vehicles. So these people were honking at me, and this one guy said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to the store. And he points at the road, side of the road. You see that? That's a sidewalk. You're supposed to be on that, not on the middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> so much to learn. Well, and, and who were you staying with? Were your parents still back um, uh, up north? Yeah, in the community. I stayed in a boarding home with uh, a nice couple from another community outside. I think they were from... Uh, Fort William, Fort William First Nation, that's beside Thunder Bay. It's just, I think it was me walking into their backyard or going to the park, you know, me missing home and being out in the bush and all that. I think that's how I used to go walk by the river too, hang out there. And they said I shouldn't be doing stuff like that, like, but I'm so used to just walking into the bush and wandering around and I think that's where I felt like I gotta go home, like, this is not me. Yeah, they must have felt terribly homesick and lonely. That's how you were schooled. You had to be flown down to Thunder Bay for school. And how, how many grades did you do there? I did, I uh, went up to grade 10. Um, uh, my mom and my dad had separated and I had to go back. Uh, there was me and my big brother there. Um, he said, heads or tails, whoever loses goes home. And I said, okay, and the other one goes on to school. I never picked tails again. <laughs> so I had to go home. My mom was a single parent of six kids, so I went back, did two jobs, stayed there. Then I went back to school when I was like 27. And just helped out my mom and my uh, siblings. And now you work in a school in the community. Yes. Um, so it sounds like things have changed. Um, little kids aren't being flown down to Thunder Bay anymore. Oh, they've been flown down. We just have only grade nine now. They're just a little older, like 15, 16, they're going. But uh, we're working on trying to get a high school there. Uh, they said five years, that was seven years ago. <laughs> so they're still working on it, um, which would, would really be good. When we started having grade 10, I mean grade nine, sorry, grade nine, uh, I noticed all the kids were staying back and doing grade nine at home. Just the ones that were 
that were, were at a higher level. We couldn't keep those kids. We had to send them out, right, so that they can be challenged. Do you think it's better for the kids now that they're going to school all the time uh, in the community from grade 9 down? I mean, it's, it sounds like it's got to be better if you're in grade 6. It's got to be easier living with your family and going to school than being in Thunder Bay. Most people don't understand that education isn't the issue. It's pulling that kid, just like myself, out of the bush. Like, everything in the bush means everything to us, right, in our culture. Like the grass the animals, you know, everything that's being provided to you. That's what you're pulling that kid out of, you know, that's that's what's in him right from when he's born, right? Like, for me anyway, it was, that's why I went walking in a bush or I went, like I missed home, right? It was, or I'll take my shoes off and walk in the grass because you're connected in that way, right? That's another thing that you don't have in a city is that, pavement, you're always on pavement, right? So that was another thing I missed when I was going to high school was like the land, you know, and uh, the animals and things that you normally learn from. Like uh, out here, I used to take a bus to, to figure out where I was going, figure out the directions, figure out First thing I did in high school was take a bus for two weeks, jumped on different buses, figuring out my routes, figuring out where to go, like, just like in the bush, right, when I go walking in the bush, I figure out the land, where the animals go, you know, where they migrate the most or what they're eating, so, then that's how I learned living in the city, I right? just did it the same way. Before I didn't, I didn't know what to do, but as soon as I started doing the things I did at home, you know, in a different way, adjusting and evolving into where I am and the element I was in, that's, that's one thing that uh, most kids do when they're in high school, leaving the community, right? They got to adjust. And that's what we try to do at the school. We try to teach them to adjust, you know, like this is what's going to happen out there. You got to watch out for this. And these are the good things that happen out there too, right? Like there's a lot of opportunities. And when they find those opportunities, some of them don't come back. They don't come back to the community. Right? They're ingrained, like I said, from residential school, right? Like most of the people that did survive residential school didn't come back unless they had to. And I think you'd mentioned to me in another conversation that often what happens is when kids uh, get to the age where they should go to Thunder Bay for high school, their parents go with them. Yes. Some parents do go with their kids, right? And, and then they end up staying out there. Like, most of them don't come back because you have to give up your house. And the housing shortage is so short at home. Like, I've applied for 17 years now. And still haven't, I mean, last time I heard I was 107th on the list for housing. And this is something which I think people uh, don't realize about reserves. The federal government builds the houses, yeah. right? Um, there's only so many houses the federal government is willing to build, so... It all was numbers of how much people are in your community, right? And they just couldn't keep up, just like the water plant, right? The water and sewer plant, they can't keep up. It was built for, I think it was 1,200, and that was built in the 90s. The pipes are not the same as 
to hold the capacity, right? And you can build houses if you can keep the water plant and sewer plant running. So it's now backing up everything because the community is getting so big. A family, say, has three or four children or more. Those kids grow up. Where are they supposed to live in the community if the number of houses isn't growing to keep up with the community? Like with my family, right? We all stayed together, all ten of us in one house. And my mom was uh, as a childcare uh, emergency home. Sometimes there was twelve of us in a home. And how many bedrooms did this house have? Four. Four bedrooms. That sounds pretty crowded. One washroom. And so you were saying that as uh, families grow, people will build shacks for themselves, but those aren't those shacks aren't hooked up to water or no, or electricity. No water, even, no. Right? You get your electricity from your parents or wherever you're living beside. Yeah, scary, scary. Certainly doesn't sound like a system that's designed to work. But like uh, like our elders said, right? Don't give up. Just keep evolving and don't. Change if you have to change, you know, and that's that's what makes the community so resilient and strong. Like, you told me before that. One of the reasons you're sharing your story with people is because your father had urged you to, right? Because yes. he, he had gone through the residential school system. He had, uh, he had a drinking problem and a drug problem as I was growing up, and I hardly spent any time with him. He was always um, in that state where, I, at the time, we didn't know what was wrong with him. We just thought it was normal, just like all the other kids in our community, like, Having parents that have gone to residence to school and their behavior was normal. It was just like normal as, you know, like watching your dad drink and doing drugs in front of you is like, that's the thing to do, right? It's normal, you know, it was normal in our house. But it was not normal for the mental part of, for, for us, right, and for him and for my mom. And that's how I, my mom had finally left him, right? Like, that was it. She drew the line and crossed it, and my mom became a single parent. And my dad took me in a bush. Uh, we usually do a, an annual fishing trip when she started getting sober and he started to stop drinking and doing drugs. And then uh, he was doing a lot better, and he uh, said, let's go fishing. I won't. You're my oldest son, he said, but my my stepbrother is older. He calls him his oldest son, but I'm his firstborn, right? So he said, let's go. I'll take you in a bush. So we went in a bush, and we were sitting there, and he said, I had a story to tell you. And then he started crying, and I was like, you okay, Dad? And he said, what's in your tea? I told him, and he laughed at me. And he, and he just said, okay. Like, he calmed down, and he said, I had a friend in residential school, he said, and that friend came to me and he spoke to me in his, in his language and I understood him and we talked secretly. And, I, and he came and then one day he said, we got caught. 
And then he said, they separated us, and I never saw him again. Never heard from him, never, you know, that really affected him, he said. And he saw so much violence, he said, like even amongst the kids, like the older kids were being told to do this, to do that, right? And the younger ones had to follow suit. As soon as they followed suit, then, you know, they were left alone, like not speaking his language. He said, I slowly started losing, not losing, but didn't feel like talking. Like, like I was ashamed after a while. They put me into shame too about being a First Nation member, right? Like, or being First Nation. He said, he's just, he was put into this thing that was his, his uh, how did he say it? His spirit was being pulled away. And something else was being put in, he said, like it was just like a transition in his body. That's what he felt like, he said. And the stuff that he saw, like, especially uh, kids, right? And, but the worst thing he said was my, uh, my sister was sitting two tables down and I couldn't hold her, I couldn't hug her, or I couldn't talk to her. And then the other two tables down was my brother, he said. Like we couldn't even look at each other or talk to each other. He said, we would glance at each other or nod at each other, you know, to say we're okay. But he said the hardest part was being lonely. Like the loneliness was the hardest part. And the only way to adjust or leave the loneliness was to adjust into what they wanted and how to do things, how to talk, how to act you know, like how to behave, he said. And it was hard for him, it was very hard for him, he said, and it was, it took a lot out of him, and, and it took, what it took, the worst is when he went home, like when he was done, was residential school, was the hardest part, he said, was where he started, like started doing the drugs and the drinking and all that, and he said that, when I went home, my parents looked at me and my grandparents, wondering who I was. I'm like, who's this kid that's... So he moved out. He didn't stay home long, he said, because, you know, he would argue with his dad because he couldn't understand some of the words and his dad is repeating to him, right, or getting mad at him or his mom is, you know, disciplining him. He said, like, I'm 16 years old. Why is, why they, why is this happening here? when it happened, when I left that place. You know, that's what the stories he was telling me. But the hardest thing was that kid, he said, that kid that he lost, his buddy there, his friend, was what really set him to a different level, he said, of how, how lonely you can get, right? And that's what he was telling me. You know, the, the, the assaults that happened to me, he said, the abuse that happened to me, the the pressure that they put on me and uh, the things that just would hurt me, he said. And the grind every day of being there, he said, was nothing compared to being lonely. He said that was that was the hardest thing was being lonely and loneliness making you adjust to what they wanted, right? And what was expected from him when he did residential school. Like every summer he would go back, he said, for two months. And then 
didn't feel the same. He said the only time he can connect when he went home was if he saw his sister, right, that went to residential school or his friends. They would go all hang out in the bush. You know, they would talk English, he said, and, you know, they weren't speaking their language. They weren't hunting. They weren't, they just went to sit around with each other. Then they always talked about what are we going to do when we go back. It was just a lot of hurt in this story, like, look at them all. I think we sat there for four hours as he was telling his story about residential school and how hard it was. It was uh, scary, he said, especially at night. You know, he didn't know who was going to be taken away to the office or downstairs, he said, because he went to St. Mary's and, uh, up in uh, Moose Knee, uh, Moose Factory, I'm sorry. That's where he went. He was in Pickle Lake first. Then his parents came and visited, and it took them only, uh, I think it was four days to get to Pickle Lake. And that was too close for them. So they moved them across Ontario to Moose Factory. Because they didn't want his parents to visit. Yeah, because it was close, right? They could even pick them up and take them home for the holidays. And so if uh, they moved them across, they only can go home for Christmas. Just like how it is now, like, like right now, and like our kids are only allowed to go home for Christmas. And that's, that's what really bugs me too, like, it bugs me that the, the kids, and they used to have check marks, right? The kids, my dad said they used to have check marks, check mark, check, okay, you can go home for the holidays. So do you feel that with the new system where um, kids in grade 10 to 13, or grand, I guess grade 10 to 12, are they reliving that sense of loneliness and alienation and separation from their culture that people went through in residential schools? Not as much. I don't think it's not as much because the programs that they have for them now, right, that the, that our community has fought for, right? Like, we want money. That's what I mean by, like, saying 1.3 million. Everybody thinks it's a lot of money, but when you spread it out and you spread it out for education, education takes most of the funding out of a community. It takes most of the funding, like it takes hunt, um, funding from housing, it takes funding from health, it takes funding from programs for the community because this education is so important, right? That money has to go there. Even when they leave the community, right, to grade 12, they have to help them, right? They're trying to not relive what my dad lived right? right and how he lived in residential school. So everybody's focusing on that, right, for the kids, you know. But most kids in our community speak better English than me. It's so, it sounds so like people down here, right, that speak English. And I noticed that too with immigrants. I noticed some of them have their accent, right? And then you have some of them that don't even have their accent. They can speak so fluently in English, and that's how it is at home. Right? Like, for me, I speak. I can still speak my language. Right? I can still understand my language more than I can speak it. But that's the adjustment you have to make, right? And that's what my dad said to me. He's like, you know, you gotta teach these kids like. 
go to school, but stay back with your what you need to know, right? And things that you need to learn. And that's what I tell the kids, right? I tell the kids, if you can, they're going to teach you French. They're going to teach you Spanish. They're going to teach you English. But if you have your language, that means you can speak four languages. <laughs> like if you can speak English and Ojibwe, that's two languages. I always use that on my resume. I said, I can speak two. <laughs> You're bilingual, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I tell them. Like, your resume will look good with two languages, not just one. And and so the kids do know Ojibwe now? Some of them, like, they try to, like, the ones that live with their grandparents or, like, my generation that live with their grandparents, they seem to understand, like, they seem to talk, and native language is easy for them. But some of the kids, like my kids, they don't, they don't speak the language, they just speak English, right? Because that's how I grew up with my dad, right? Like, like he didn't speak his language unless we were in the bush. Like, when we were in the bush with him, he would, he was very fluent, right? Like, he could speak and he would talk to us and that. But most of my time was with my grandparents. That's how I learned to speak my language and stayed speaking to my language. But after doing all the school and felt like I had lost it, I went back working at the school and I was teaching native language for a while there and it just all started coming back. Like it never, never left. It just, it was there and just, I just had to use it. And that's what I tell the kids today is, it's there, you just gotta use it, right? It's, once you practice using it, then you'll fluently speak it. Because as, as you go north from where I live, the kids speak their language up there in Ahale, they call uh, my community Mansukans. Mansukan means somebody that's different, like that's not in the element, right? And that's how we were looked at, because when we go up north, we don't speak the language to them, right? We're only English, we only talk English. And that's what they mean by Mansukan, like something that's like the drawing I gave you, right? It's just something that comes into a different element and they don't understand, right? And it's scary or it's happy or sad or... So well, this has been great. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Because you. you may learn a lot from, you know, uh, coming down to Toronto, but we're learning a lot from listening to about your life up in the community. So thank you very much. Yes. That was Reverend Stephen Milton in conversation with Leo at Lugan. Now we are going to hear some music from our Lawrence Park Community Church soloists. It is a musical setting of the famous speech by Chief Seattle. Oh, oh, oh. 
Thank you for listening today. The Rooster Crows podcast is produced by Lawrence Park Community Church in Toronto. We're a progressive church that focuses on faith, justice, and community. If you're interested in learning more about Indigenous issues in Canada, please visit our YouTube channel for our Indigenous Learning Time series. If you would like to attend or see any of our services, please visit our website at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. My name is Judy Pressman, and I'm the program manager here at the church. Thank you so much for listening. Peace.